Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson. I'm coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you so much for joining me once again. This is episode 49, and we're nearing the end of season two of the podcast. And I would like to thank you for tuning in once again. Before we get going here, I need to reach out and ask for some help in keeping this podcast up and running. So far, I've been relying on one-time donations from all of you to help me with the show's overhead, which is much appreciated from all of those who have contributed, and you can still do that. But I've set up a new way that you can be an ongoing supporter of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over these final six episodes of Season 2, I'd like to encourage you all to head over to the Patreon page that I've started for the podcast. You'll find it at patreon.com slash makers and shakers. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash makers and shakers. Many of you know about Patreon already, but for those who don't, it's a way for you, the listener, to kick in and support the show on a monthly basis rather than a one-time donation, even if it's as little as a buck a month. It's simple and secure. I'd like to quickly explain what the overhead is on a show like this. For regular listeners, you'll know that the show's unique content is not just an interview format, but music clips are also used to demonstrate what we talk about on the show. And that's what makes the show cool and different, but it's what also makes the show, on the production side, time-consuming. The editing and everything involved on an absolute minimal basis takes us about four to six hours per episode, which I currently pay someone to do. Then there's the hosting of the files, the launching and promotion of each episode, which, while not extravagant, is just an expense that I can no longer really handle on my own. I love doing this podcast, and so I'm throwing it out there to you, my listeners, from over the last couple of years, to help me by kicking in a little bit each month. As I said, even as little as a dollar a month would help. Um, there are some exclusive rewards that start happening at the $5 per month level and going up from there. And together we can keep the show going. So we're going to see how this Patreon campaign goes, and if we hit our goal over the next six weeks, or come pretty close, we will know that there are enough people out there willing and able to keep making it happen, and we'll keep bringing it on for you. Once again, the site can be found at patreon.com slash makersandshakers. As always, you can also make a one-time donation, if you'd rather, at my website and the podcast home at stevedawson.ca. And we can also always use your help in spreading the word by leaving us a review or comments on the iTunes Store podcast page. Thank you all for listening and supporting. 
Okay, moving on to the show today. This is episode 49, as I mentioned. And my guest today is Mr. David Bromberg, who's a wonderful guitar player. He's had a really interesting career. He was a session guy, really, starting out um, back in the 60s and 70s and played on some amazing records. And then he kind of vanished. And that was because he got into this whole side thing that he does, and it's not even a side thing anymore, I think it's his main thing that he does, which has to do with uh, selling violins and, and violin repair. And he kind of did just that for a while, and then he started dipping his toe back into the whole music racket. And um, in the last five or six years, he's put out a bunch of really cool records, mostly very bluesy, and he's got a new record that's very cool called The Blues, The Whole Blues and Nothing But The Blues. And you can go to his website at davidbromberg.net, and there's all kinds of information there on all the wonderful sessions that he's done, and um, also his recent work with an excellent band. I should also put a big shout out to one of his band members, who I hope I am going to pronounce his name correctly, Josh Kanuski, or it could be Kanuski. I don't know for sure, because I haven't met him, but he approached me online and said that he listens to the show and that he was the drummer for David Bromberg. And would I be interested in speaking with David Bromberg? I was very interested in speaking to David Bromberg. So I, of course I said yes. But at the time I was also super keen on doing some kind of special uh, episode on one of my heroes, a guy named John Hartford, who many people will know, of course. David Bromberg has a direct connection because he produced one of John Hartford's great, great, great records called Aeroplane, and I strongly suggest you go check that out. But David Bromberg was known to me as a guitar player, and then all of a sudden, like out of the blue, he produces this classic John Hartford record. So I figured, yeah, I got to talk to that guy. I have not done the, the special show that I was planning to do on Hartford, but maybe in the future I will do that because I've been collecting people's stories about that fella. He's a real character and has a real history. But anyway, back to David Bromberg. He's a, an excellent guitar player, but also plays dobro and pedal steel and acoustic and electric guitar, of course, and fiddle. Uh, he came up playing um, around New York. And another thing that he did that I found really, or that, that I always have found interesting is this whole school of acoustic guitar players that came up in New York in the 60s studying with Reverend Gary Davis. And I've always heard people talking about that, but I was never really sure what that meant. Like, does that mean paying a guy for lessons? Does it mean hanging out and making him lunch? Uh, like Karate Kid style? I don't know. So I wanted to ask him about that kind of stuff as well. He went on to play with Jerry Jeff Walker and of course had a huge hit playing guitar on Jerry Jeff's song, Mr. Bojangles, that got a lot of airplay and was a big hit. And he played on a bunch of Dylan records, including one of my favorites, Self-Portrait. He's co-written songs with George Harrison. He played on Ringo Starr's record and Phoebe Snow's record and Leon Redbone and John Prine and Joe Henry, all kinds of really cool stuff. So we got a chance to um, sit down and yak about sessions and guitars and fiddles. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. 
great tones, and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And this is my conversation with David Bromberg. Right on. Well, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Sure thing. I was wondering if maybe we could just start with this whole idea of something that that I can really relate to that that you do, which is this whole trip of doing your own thing as an artist, but then really digging and being known for being a sideman. And that's something that I know earlier in your career you did a lot of, and it seems to me maybe you don't do that anymore. And I'm just wondering how you see your... I don't get asked. You don't get asked, eh? I, I love doing it. Okay. I really love being an accompanist, and I miss it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So was that something, like, you took a big break in your career. Was that something that you just kind of, it, it just stopped happening after a while? It, it uh, slowed down when I started performing with my own band. And okay. when, when I uh, broke up the band and, and thought I was retired, pretty much everything stopped. Okay. Um, and the, and the sideman thing just sort of never picked up again, but it's, it's the kind of thing that you would do if the opportunity arose, I guess then. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the day before I had my own band, I made, I made my living as a a sideman and a studio guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. Back in those days when you were both doing, cause you were making tons of, well, not tons of records, but frequently you were making records of your own and you were being a, a really well-recorded sideman and respected sideman. How did you see yourself back then? Like, I'm just wondering, like, as a musician, did you did you consider the solo records to be like a just a, something that you did on the side of being a sideman, or was it kind of the other way around? I really took being an accompanist very seriously, and I had very strong ideas about how it should be done and how it shouldn't be done. Yeah. And that was that was my focus. And the way that I started to uh, be a, a, the guy who talks into the microphone uh, um, was because of um, my first band, which was one guy, uh, Steve Berg. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve was a great guitar player. The night before I met him, he'd been at Studio 54 jamming with Hendrix. Okay. That's how good a guitar player he was. And uh, we used to sit around my apartment and, uh, and, and play. And every now and then I'd sing something, and, and Steve wanted to be my accompanist. He said he'd play bass. Okay. And so, uh, I mean, that was, that was a big deal that he would say that, or at least to me it was a big deal. And uh, um, he was my band, The Fabulous Torpedoes. He was the Fabulous Torpedoes. (laughs) David Bromberg and the Fabulous Torpedoes. Right. Okay. Um, And was that something that you were doing like around the time of your first solo records? He he was backing you up, basically? Yeah. Um, I think by the time I did the first uh, record, uh, I may have added um, 
Andy Statman playing mandolin. Okay. Fast forward kind of to the new record. Like the the other thing that I find really interesting with your playing and your career is that you've always sort of juggled this whole acoustic and electric thing really well as well, where uh, I guess my feeling would be that that would come from being a sideman and having to adapt to different scenarios and being able to be very adept at acoustic and electric guitar. But it seems like lately you've sort of swung back into the electric realm more than the acoustic realm, although there's some acoustic on the new record. Um, is that something that you've just kind of missed and you wanted to to get back into? Or how did that uh, come about that it was more of an electric project? I'm 71. And uh, I, I used to be a very fast player. Um, it's not that I always played fast. As a matter of fact, I I tried to use speed as uh, with discretion. Yeah. Uh, um, but um, but on the acoustic guitar, it was part of the impact of some of what I did. Right. Um, but I cannot do that any longer. Just physically, you mean? Physically, I cannot play fast. Okay. Um, and um, so the um, blues and, uh, and electric guitar suits what I'm able to do better. And... And I've always loved the blues, so I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying doing it. Tell me a bit about your electric blues influences. Like I hear on the slide stuff, there's a lot of like Elmore James and uh, on the electric stuff, maybe Hubert Sumlin and, and people like that. Could you tell me a bit about who were the people that you really um, revered when you were learning that stuff? Well, most of it is going to seem very obvious, but some of it I think is going to surprise you. Okay. B.B. King was my first big influence and then Freddie King and Albert King. Yeah. And I'm crazy about Albert King to this day and BB, but but Albert uh, I just he's my favorite. B.B. and Albert have something in common, which was the uh, is that uh, neither one of them would waste notes. True. Uh, um, and speed was not part of what either one of them did. There was something else that they did that I discovered not from a guitar player. Um, I I was for a while uh, a student of Reverend Gary Davis's. Yeah. Um, and that was on the acoustic guitar. Right. And uh, with the Reverend, I would I would sometimes take him to church, um, and I, I I really liked church, and so I would occasionally visit some other churches. Uh-huh. The singing uh, was usually wonderful, and sometimes the preaching was pretty wonderful. And I made a connection in my mind between the preaching that I heard and BB and Albert King. 
you listen to, to these two musicians and, well, let's just take Bibi for, for the best example. Bibi okay. has said in many interviews that his tone on the electric guitar is an attempt to recreate the sound that Lonnie Johnson got on the acoustic guitar. Right, I can hear that. Yeah, it's easy to hear. His choice of notes is his own. His phrasing is a preacher's. To me, that's something very important. And you hear it also in Albert. If you listen to these guys, they preach their solos. And the, the essence of that is that uh, um, a good preacher will leave frequent pauses, which make you... It draws you in. Very anxious to hear what they're going to say next. Yeah, yeah, that's totally right. Did you, did you get a chance to play with either of those guys? I played with BB. I never did get a chance to play with Albert. I saw him a few times. Uh-huh. I played a, a few times with uh, with BB, and it was one of the honors of my life each time. I bet. So, what was it about Albert's playing in particular that drew you to him? Like he's a bit more cutting, maybe a little darker. Uh, what do you What did you dig about about Albert King in particular? He had a unique choice of notes, yeah. and his phrasing was unbelievably good. and And he's very hard to duplicate. He is, yeah. And it's there's also that whole lefty thing going on with him, which is which kind of where he's pulling the bends instead of pushing them pulling them down so that he stretches the strings a lot more than most do um i can stretch uh, a b string uh a major third and i do that a lot that's a big bend it's a big bend yeah it's uh it's easiest on the on the b string albert of course would do the e string the b string the g string yeah you know He'd bend them all, and, and, and he had a way, and I think it is easier pulling than pushing, uh, um, of doing it very slowly. Yeah, he, is, he could milk those bends like nobody else. Like nobody else. <laughs> um, what, about, what about on slide guitar? Like, I definitely hear some Elmore James, but, and, and we can talk about the acoustic influences separately, but, but what about for electric slide guitar? Well, I mean, uh, El... El Elmore James and Earl Hooker. Oh yeah, uh, right. yeah. I'm mostly uh, uh, tuned into to, to the uh, older guys. I mean, uh, Tampa sure. Red was fantastic, but you won't hear much of him in my playing. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, if I could, I would. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite slide guitar player these days is Larry Campbell. Yeah, he's fantastic. So he produced the new record, right? Yeah, okay. and played on the track. Okay. Um, so tell me a little bit about the sessions for the for the new record. Um, where did you where did you record it? Was it in in New York somewhere, or where did you do it? 
Well, um, Larry only works with uh, uh, Justin Guip as an engineer. Okay. And and Justin is a great engineer. Uh, as a matter of fact, when uh, our uh, CD was being mastered, the guy doing the mastering said, you, you guys must be on an audiophile label, right? He said, what are you talking about? He said, well, this is audiophile quality. And, and that's, uh, you know, with... That's Justin. I mean, that's the quality he gets. He's also a good drummer. He's a really good drummer. Oh, cool. And so he has a studio in, uh, uh, in uh, I think it's Milan, New York, just outside of Red Hook. Okay. And, and you used your band, right? Like you've got a band that you've been playing with for a number of years now. Was it all those guys playing the live band, playing on, Absolutely. on the record? Fantastic. Absolutely. I'm crazy about those guys. Yeah, so you've been playing with them for how long? Well, different lengths for different guys, actually. Okay. It, it, it didn't happen all at once. Right. Uh, the one uh, who I've been with the longest is uh, the fiddler, Nate Grower. We figured out the other day that it was about nine years. I lost my uh, bass player of 40 years. I, on, I was only working on weekends, and um, he, 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 during the week, he was a respiratory therapist, and he got promoted and couldn't go on the road anymore. Oh, no. That happens. It does, but I, I, I thought it, when he stopped, I'd stop, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't quite ready to stop yet, so I found a, uh, a very nice bass player and singer named uh, Swavik Zenyashenko. Okay. And he's, it's under a year with Swavik. Is he on the record, or was that? Is, no, no, so the he's more recent. Was, was Butch Amia. Okay, and Josh plays drums, right? Josh Kanuski. Yeah. yeah. So I've talked to him a, a couple times, a little bit. He sort of put me in touch with you in the first place. So that's cool. And is there anybody else in the band? Yeah, uh, um, there's two more people. Um, Mark Cosgrove uh, plays guitar and mandolin. He's He's made the, arguably the biggest difference in the band, uh, and and it's uh, he's a brilliant soloist. But the thing that really has affected the overall music is his rhythm guitar playing. That's a huge part of uh, blues. Yeah, especially on electric. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in what sort of ways has he pushed the 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 band in interesting ways for you? He comes up with very interesting parts, and and it, and it makes the whole thing for me much more listenable. So uh, so you add me, and I'm five, and the sixth member is our tour manager, Mike Russo. Okay. And he's as much a part of the band as any of the musicians. Yeah, that's good to acknowledge. Nice. Mm. Uh, yeah, having a rhythm guitar player, like as a, as a lead player, which is what you're doing, so playing lead and singing, like having somebody filling that gap of, of having a great rhythm guitar player makes a huge difference for you, I bet, right? It, it just... It, it, it improves everything and it, it improves the entire body of the tune. And um, uh, Mark also plays lead. Uh, it's not like uh, I'm the only lead player. Yeah. He, uh, he plays pretty much uh, uh, pretty near as many as I do. If you listen to the record, you can tell who's soloing. Um, my guitar is the uh, nastier sounding one. <laughs> uh, tell me a bit about that. Like what kind of guitar guitars are you playing on that record, electric-wise? Well, electric, I, I used a guitar that I've had. It's vintage now, but when I bought it, it was used. Uh -huh. uh, it's a 1958 Esquire. Oh, killer. Uh, and, uh, but it doesn't have an original pickup. Uh -huh. 
The back pickup is a Red Rhodes Velvet Hammer that I got when Red was still alive. Yeah. And uh, um, the neck pickup is a patent applied for Gibson Humbucker. Oh, cool. So that was like your modification that you did recently? Or you know, I don't even remember. Okay, it just magically appeared. I've had it since the 60s. Really? Yeah. But so so we're talking... We're talking fifty years. Yeah, man, that's a serious bond. Was it a, was it the main guitar for you back then too? Yeah. Wow. So you've really stuck with that axe. That's cool. I figure if I ever lose that guitar, I have to retire. <laughs> so is that the only guitar you played on the whole record? Well, awesome. that and I played an acoustic guitar on a couple tracks. Yeah, right. Um, that was the only you... electric I played. I, I, I since we did the record, I found another fifties. Uh, uh, I found a fifties telly. And, and I've been using that as well on stage. play slide and stuff do you do you do a different tuning or anything i think you're in open d or something aren't you on the record nope oh you just play standard i just play standard yeah okay i have a thing about when i when i start to practice fiddle or mandolin my guitars yell at me (laughs) and and when i start to to deal with uh uh open tunings um my strings yell at me yeah it doesn't suit every guitar to be open tuned i find well, you got to really know what you're doing, and I, I play a little bit out of uh, out of uh, open G and open D occasionally, uh, G more than D, which uh, most people do it the other way around. But you know, uh, um, especially if I'm doing Robert Johnson or uh-huh. Blind Willie McTell or something like that. And what about amps? Like it sounds like a like it's sort of a small tweed amp or something that you're playing through. What what's your amp situation? <laughs> I, on the record, on this record, I used my um, uh, Tone King Falcon amp. Yeah, what's that? Uh, it's a boutique amplifier okay. uh, that I really love. My, I have two favorite amps, and uh, the, the, the one I've had longest is a 1938 Electar, which is uh, uh, about the, a little smaller than a bread box. Yeah, I know those things. They, they look cool, too. Well, it's it, it's it might not be the one you know. The most common one they've started to reproduce. Okay. Um, but the one that I take on the road and put in the overhead when I fly uh-huh. uh, is a little uh, dark brown one that's a little bit smaller, uh, and it's uh, it's older, uh, 1938. Those things were built by um, Nat Daniels, uh, the guy who founded uh, Dan Electro, but he built them when he was going to high school. Wow, with whatever he had, I think. So they're 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 kind of cool amps. I had always only played through amps with Fender on them for for most of my life. Yeah. And uh, a, a few CDs ago, I I did a session uh, with John um, John Hyatt. John Hyatt. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and um, he brought in a a, a Supro amp, uh-huh. and I ended up playing through that on the session. So I started getting interested in amps that weren't named Fender.
And is it is the Electar like five watts or something? Is it just a tiny little sucker? I think it might be 12 or 15 watts. 10-inch speaker, uh, an old Jensen. I used it on uh, uh, a concert in New York where there were a lot of, uh, there was a house band that was all first call studio guys. Yeah. And, and they made me turn down. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, those rascally studio guys don't like volume. They thought it was too loud, that amp. Wow. Maybe we could, we could just talk a little bit about, um, uh, you mentioned the Reverend Gary Davis, and I, I want to get into that um, for a little bit, which sort of dovetails into your the earlier part of your career. Like, I know you're not originally from New York, but you moved to New York at some point. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, where where you were as a kid and, and when you came to New York first? Um, I was raised in Tarrytown, New York, which is uh, Westchester County suburbs. Okay. And uh, I came to New York. Uh, I used to go into New York uh, from uh, the age of about 14 or 15. For music, you know, yes, and yes. Um, I moved when I went to college at Columbia, uh, so I was 17 or 18, and I did that for a year and a half and took a leave of absence. Uh, I don't think they want me back. <laughs> what were you taking at Columbia? Well, when you're only there for half of your sophomore year, you you know, you're taking all of the... the uh, <laughs> The courses you have to take, okay. except I was taking, I had a few music courses because I wanted to to uh, uh, major in, in some music stuff. Okay. So I did have some music classes. Okay. And what year was that where, where you were there in Columbia? Like a, 63. 63. Okay. So the whole, the whole thing in the village was sort of starting to heat up around then, I guess. And were you uh, around that scene? A little bit. Okay. Um, uh, I, I don't know that it was just starting to, to heat up. The thing about the village is when you go down there, whatever decade it's in, everyone will tell you that it's just not what it used to be. Right. <laughs> you know, they'll tell you, you know, 10 years ago, I mean, that's when it really was happening. <laughs> Here's the thing that, that I find so fascinating about this whole thing with Reverend Gary Davis, who I know was living in New York at the time, but there's like an endless list of guys and women that knew him and took lessons from him. And, you know, like, I don't know to what extent, you know, some of those people might be exaggerating their involvement with him, or I don't know, but like, was it really like that where there was like 10 or 15 people like hanging out with him all the time learning guitar? Cause it sure seems like the, the amount of people that say they studied with and lived and helped and, and stuff with Reverend Gary Davis is long. Like, what was going on there? People would come uh, on different days yeah, and at different times of day. Okay. So it wasn't like 15 people all at once. Right. Uh, but, but there might be two or three. Uh, you'd, uh, you'd go to the house and uh, um, have a lesson, and uh, Annie would make uh, lunch, and okay. the lesson would continue. And what was the lesson? Like, was he actually sitting down like like a teacher saying, "All right, let's let's do this song now"? Like, was, was absolutely, it, really. He his he had wonderful patience. Okay, and, and he was a wonderful man. And were you like, was he a teacher? Like, were you showing up and paying him to teach you songs, or was it more of just like like a mentorship kind of thing? Oh, he was a teacher. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I first asked him if I could take lessons. Yeah. He said, $5, bring the money, honey. 
<laughs> and and then after a while, um, uh, you know, he asked me to lead him instead of paying him money, you know, because he was blind. So I'd take him to church or to gigs. Was his life like a, was he kind of just hermit-like at that point and, and, and having students and making his living that way? Because he wasn't playing a ton, was he? Yeah, he was. He, was? Uh, okay. um, when I, uh, he wasn't doing that many concerts when I first met him. When I first met him, he was living in the Bronx mm-hmm. in, a, in kind of a shack in between some high rises. Hmm. And I think this story needs to be told as many times as possible. Um, when uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded uh, a song that they called If I Had My Way, which the Reverend used to call Samson and Delilah, yeah. uh, they found it wasn't copywritten. And as far as they were concerned, the Reverend must have written it. He hadn't. But the, uh, the, you could never find anybody who, who'd done it. There was nobody alive, I don't think, at that time who'd done it before he had. Uh, you know, it was in the air. Right. And uh, like they so made sure songs. that he got it copywritten and got the royalties, which enabled him to buy a nice place out in uh, uh, Queens. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. They they really did a the right thing, and they uh, you know I'm grateful to them. Yeah. So he so he moved from the Bronx from his little shack out to Queens, and and were you around him that whole time, like both in both those places? Yeah. Okay. And he and he kept teaching after he had his windfall as well. Yes, and and uh, at the time he he was doing um, he started doing. Um, college concerts and things like that. Okay. And I think it really opened up for him. I think, uh, um, I think Peter, Paul and Mary doing that tune helped open things up for him. It wasn't the only thing. I mean, he, he'd appeared, uh, at concerts. Uh, he did a concert in Carnegie hall early on and, yeah. and he did, uh, uh, Pete Seeger's TV show, rainbow quest, a time or two. And he has such like an incredible style. So when you when you learn from him, I'm just curious. Like when he's teaching you, was he teaching you like kind of basic tunes, or was he showing you like the Reverend Gary Davis way of playing? You know, whatever the song was, he was showing you all the intricate, crazy stuff that he was doing with his right hand. And because because it's like very nobody plays like that. So was he teaching you his style or was he sort of teaching you song? He was teaching me his style okay. uh, by teaching me the songs he did the way he did them. Yeah. Of course, he'd mess with you. <laughs> In what way? 
I mean, I remember one time he was showing me uh, I'll Be All Right, which is the song that uh, We Shall Overcome was taken from. Right. He was teaching it to me, and he played a chord I didn't recognize. I said, what's that chord? He said, that's an E9. I said, what's an E9? He said, this is an E9. Yeah. Okay. So I, I learned it, and I came back the next week, and I played the tune for him, and he stopped me. He said, what's that chord you're playing? I said, that's an E9. He said, what's an E9? This is an E9. <laughs> I said, no, it's a B minor. <laughs> and from then on, if he knew I was there, he always played a B minor in the tune. So how long would you have been hanging with him for? Like a couple of years while you were there? Yeah, I think so. Uh-huh. You know, some some periods more than others. Tell me about how things went for you. Like you moved to New York, you, you went to Columbia, you said, for a, a little while, dropped out of there. Um, how did the playing thing evolve for you? Like, did you get involved with bands and stuff? Or um, like, because w- you were right off the bat doing sideman stuff. So what was the path to that? I'd hang around the village, play with as many people as I could. Yeah. You know, I started out uh, playing in what they call the basket houses. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. I've never heard that term. What is that? Oh, okay. Uh, at that time, New York had some very strict cabaret laws. And if you were going to play someplace where the instrument had less than 88 strings, in other words, any, any string instrument that wasn't a piano, yeah. uh, you had to get a uh, cabaret license, and so did the place. And uh, you, I don't know you what You personally it, had to have a cabaret license? You personally had to have a cabaret license, which entailed getting fingerprinted and photographed. Weird. And paying money. Right, of course. And there were all of these people who just wanted to play so bad so that people who owned property or in storefronts uh, turned them into what they called coffee houses. Yeah. And uh, um, they hid behind those cabaret laws. I can't pay you, you uh. know. Uh, uh, but uh, when you finish your set, it, it pass around a bread basket, you can keep whatever people put in. Oh, it sounds like Nashville today. <laughs> Well, they might be doing it today in Nashville, but <laughs> they, they certainly are. Uh, you know, the crowds never thought that it was true you weren't being paid because they were paying a buck and a quarter or two bucks for a Coke that was a dime usually. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so they figure somebody's making a lot of money. I did okay, not because I was a good performer. I was really terrible. Um, oh, come on but, now. No, no, I really was. <laughs> but uh, I had good basket pitches. Oh, okay. So you could you you could rustle up a few bucks at the end of the show. Yeah, but what I preferred doing was playing guitar for somebody else. Right. And um, and I played guitar for um, when uh, Dino was not with uh, Richie Havens. I played guitar with Richie. Oh, cool. Uh, I, I played guitar with Paul Siebel, who I thought was and still think uh, just a wonderful songwriter and yes. singer. Yes. And then other names that you couldn't possibly have heard. Okay. Just like an endless stream of of people that have come and gone. Uh, Jerry Jeff Walker appeared on the scene. But before I played with Jerry Jeff, Tom Paxton asked me to play with him. Mm-hmm. He was the first national act that I ever played with. And so did you start touring with him? Did a, a little bit of it. 
Yeah, but also like playing around New York in the coffee houses a lot with him as well then, right? No, I think he had pretty much graduated from the coffee houses okay. at the time. Uh, so, uh, you know, for a special gig or a concert, you know, if he uh, could afford another plane ticket or something, you know, he called me and I, I he had me on his records. Yeah, yeah. I told you, behold, I give you the morning, I give you the day. Close beneath our windowsill, the earth is humming. Like an eager Christmas child, the day is coming. Listen to the morning song it sings. I think I'll wake you now and hold you. Um, so tell me about when you first went into the studio, like as a sideman, there's, you know, in, in your career, looking at your discography and things that you're involved in, from, I don't know when the first one would have been, like around 66, 67, you started playing on a pretty incredible stream of, of records. Uh, do you remember what some of the first ones would have been where you were the sideman brought in to play guitar on somebody's album or another instrument? The first ones uh, were, I, I played mostly electric guitar on, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was... Uh, I think the very first one, I don't know what I played, but it was for a guy named Tony McKay. Mm -hmm. uh, but then um, I ran into a uh, producer named Thomas Jefferson Kay, Tommy Kay, yeah. uh, who was a character and a half. Okay. And um, so he would have me on uh, a lot of the records that he did. And many, uh, it, then there was a period when he was producing everything for Mercury. Um, and Mercury had these bands that weren't bands. Tommy would produce something, and they had other producers who'd, you know, get studio guys together, and they they get a, a if they had a hit, then they then they'd put together a band. Right. You know, that was like Steam, the Archies, I, I, even I think the Red Bank was one of those. Okay. Uh, but he but Tommy also did uh, Jay and the Americans, and I ran into one of the guys from Jay and the Americans, and he told me I was on the last hit. Really? Yeah. And you had no idea? No, and I, my, I don't even know if my name was on the record. I doubt it. Uh, my name wasn't on most of those things I did with Tommy. Really? So uh, he was a little yeah. sneaky or just careless? No, it, Sidemen didn't get credits in those days. That's no good. I got a story to tell you about Tommy, though, just to give you an idea of, of what he was like. After a while, uh, Tommy never paid scale. He paid, you know, less than scale. Uh -huh. And and after a while, I was I was getting scale and double scale, you know, yeah, with maybe even more. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I stopped working. Uh, I started turning down the the sessions with Tommy. Yeah. And he called me up one day and he said, "I got to I got to session you. You, you got to do this one." <laughs> I said, "I don't know. I don't think I really have to." He said, "The other guitar player is going to be Eric Clapton." Uh huh. I said, "Well, I guess I have to do this one." Uh huh. So um, a couple of days later, I got my guitar and I went to the st studio that he told me it was at. And I, I'm there and I'm setting up my equipment. And there's another guitar player setting up his stuff. And I, I go over to Tommy and I say, Tommy, <laughs> that's not Eric Clapton. He said, I know, but he looks just like him, doesn't he? <laughs> what a little scammer. Yep. Oh, my God. And one was with uh, an album with Link Ray. No way. No way. What were you playing on a Link Ray record? 
Uh, I don't remember, but <laughs> I know I played. <laughs> Met Link, he's a cool guy. That's super cool. Uh, so how busy were you as a session guy, like in those early days? Like, were you, were you in the studio all the time? No, I don't, I don't think I was in the studio all the time. You know, the first call guy uh, was Eric Weisberg uh, uh, oh. for acoustic guitar. Okay. And uh, um, there were any number, there was a great guitar player named Charlie Brown, who was the, uh, one of the two or three. Eric, uh, Eric Gale was another blues, uh, right. electric blues guitar player. He was wonderful. Yeah, he's fantastic. I've got some of his stuff. Uh, Cornell Dupree. You know, there, there were some great, great guitar players. I, but I, I, I worked enough, and I got to work with some great musicians. Yeah, I'll say. I don't really know much about that scene, the, the New York recording scene. Like, there's a Nashville scene that I know quite a bit about, and, uh, you know, the L.A. scene, of course. There was all kinds of stuff going on with a certain cast of characters. But the New York scene doesn't seem to hit my radar as much. Was there, like, a distinct group there as well, or was it just, like, guys were coming and going all the time? Oh, uh, well, in L.A. you had the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. And in Nashville, there's always been uh, uh, a pool of musicians that, that all the records are done with. You know, I'd get called in by singers and producers. You know, I worked with some of the same people occasionally, but not that often. What about your relationship with Jerry Jeff Walker? Did he just show up in the New York scene and you ended up playing with him? Because I know you had a long sort of playing stint in his band. So how, how did that happen? I was about? his band for a long time. <laughs> you, you were it, yeah. I was it. Yeah. Um, we were introduced by a harmonica player named Donnie Brooks. Okay. Uh, and I remember the afternoon very well. And I really loved playing with Jerry Jeff. He was part of... <clears throat> A fusion band called Circus Maximus. Oh, I don't know that band. Well, they had an an FM hit, The Wind. Ask her by that what she means. She says she doesn't know. But as she flew away, she seemed to say, The wind. And uh, they didn't like Jerry Jeff's songs. They were too country. Right. Uh, so, so Jerry Jeff liked playing with me, and I liked playing with him. And I would get us gigs, and uh, and and drag him along. Was he un- <laughs> was he unknown at that point? Uh huh. Okay. And was he living in New York? Like, was he there all the time? He was so unknown. Uh, Jerry Jeff Walker didn't even exist. Okay. That that was not his name. Oh, what was he going under at that time? Well, he had a, a number of different names that he uh, had used, uh, or at least three. Okay. And, and so he combined two of them, uh, Jerry Groper and Jeff Walker, and became Jerry Jeff Walker. Oh, interesting. Neither one of them was the name that he uh, was born with. So you played with him a bunch, and you played on his, on his first records, right? On his first four or five, yeah. Yeah. What do you remember about those sessions? Like, were they done in New York? And who was producing those records? The first thing that Jerry Jeff had to do was get off Vanguard, which had him under contract because of Circus Maximus. I had introduced uh, uh, Jerry Jeff to Bob Fass, and we used to go out and play on Bob Fass's show from midnight till dawn. It was called Radio Unnameable. Okay. And... um, Bob fell in love with Mr. Bojangles. 
Yeah. And so he, he, he had three performances of us doing it, and he, he put them on a tape loop and would play them several times a night if we weren't there. Really? Just um, Mr. Bojangles after Mr. Bojangles? Yeah. Wow. The uh, piano player at Jilly's, uh, a guy named Bobby Cole, yeah. uh, heard Mr. Bojangles and decided to record it. Uh, um, he figured it was out. Because, oh. you know, the, the only prerogative a songwriter has is he gets to decide who can release the first right. uh, uh, thing. And so Bobby thought it was out already. Uh-oh. And he, he uh, Jilly's was the, the bar that uh, Sinatra would hang out when he was in New York City. Yeah. So uh, um, Bobby Cole recorded it for Date Records, which was a subsidiary of Columbia. And Jerry Jeff still didn't have a contract. Um, just before Bobby recorded it, um, Jerry Jeff, every record company in New York wanted the the song, except for Vanguard, which wasn't really listening to the radio. Of course. Um, so we went into the studio, uh, um, Jerry Jeff and I and Gary White, who was the bass player for Circus Maximus, yeah. and and played with uh, me and Jerry Jeff when he could afford an extra guy. And we got Norman Smart, who was part of a group called Bogrumpus, but was later Elvis's drummers, one of Elvis's drummers. And we, we did a track for uh, Vanguard. Uh, where uh, Norman played uh, Hambone, you know. Yeah. This is a version of Mr. Bojangles, you mean? Yeah. We oh, recorded okay. it for them, and they, they said, nah, we don't want it, but look, uh, we'll we'll release you, but if we want an album from you in the next, I don't know how many years, then you have to give it to us. Let go, Shook back his clothes all around. So uh, he signed with Atco, and Tom Dowd produced first the single of, uh, uh, of Mr. Bojangles, and then the first Jerry Jeff's first album. Really, Tom Dowd. Tom Dowd, the man who invented faders. Yeah, he's incredible. Uh, so he was extraordinary. I understand that actually he was involved with the Manhattan Project. That's what I hear too. Yeah, he yeah he was like a total, just a incredible scientific mind who happened to find music as a thing, but he could have basically done many many other things. But uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, you recorded that song again with him then? We flew down to Memphis. Okay. Jerry Jeff was go- doing the song with uh, the uh, Dixie Flyers. Oh, really? Duck done on the bass and, you know. Yeah. And there was a, there was a, a, a woman uh, they had playing a, a, an electric 12-string. Okay. And Tom wasn't interested in having some kid he never heard of play guitar. Right. But I was allowed to sit in the control room. Okay. And I was really upset. I was in tears. And uh, uh, one of the things was that Tom was having a very difficult time with the tune. It kept sounding like a Viennese waltz. (laughs) Finally, he said, okay, let the kid play on it. 
and uh, give give them your guitar. So they get, handed me the twelve string, and uh, I played my part on it, w- which was not in three four. It was in six eight. Right, and this is a part you've been playing forever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and it worked. Yeah. Uh, that was what it needed, evidently, and uh, so for that reason, he allowed me to play on the album as well. And so you did a whole record with Tom Dowd then. Yeah, a whole LP. Okay, that's killer. Well, and then later we went down to uh, Nashville. Uh, the fourth album we did in Nashville for Vanguard. That was the one that Vanguard had asked for. Okay, for you, like obviously the Jerry Jeff thing sort of took off at some point, and and were you touring and being super occupied by just being his side guy through those years? Yeah. So how? Yeah, did, I, I mean, I loved it. So how did your session work? fit into that schedule then if you're touring all the time like you're also around that time you get really busy doing all kinds of interesting stuff so what like did you just sort of fit it in in between tours yeah pretty much okay you know there's there's so many sessions that you played on that are that are incredible but like how does that translate into like playing on the on you played on a couple of of dylan records self-portrait and new morning that are actually a couple of my favorites. Um, and then the one after that as well. Oh, you did too. Okay. What? What? Yeah, I think it was only called. I think it was just called Bob Dylan. Oh, okay. Um, so how did that come about? Was that just something like? Did you have a relationship with Dylan back from New York days, and he called on you, or how? How did you end up on those records? Well, I I had been introduced to him when uh, I was accompanying Jerry Jeff at uh, the Bitter End. He came. Time or two, mm-hmm. and and somebody said, uh, "This is Bob Dylan, Bob this Dave Bromberg." That was that. Yeah, um, I didn't think he paid any attention to me, but he called me up one day. Really? And uh, at first, I thought it was somebody putting me on. <laughs> um, he, he said he was trying out a studio, and would I come try it out with them? Well, it was a studio he knew really well, actually. Weird. That's how he asked you to play on a record. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and we worked well together. It, with Bob has a unique way of working. Um, he likes to do a tune only once or twice. Yeah. Uh, um, so you get it or you don't because there's you don't rehearse it necessarily. Yeah. You just do it or not. Right, and I love working that way. Yeah, that's exciting, and and so so it was fun. And was that self portrait that those songs ended up being self portrait? Yeah, and and uh, another self portrait as well. Right. Okay. You know that they put out uh, a lot of the stuff was just me and Bob, and it was never heard that way until another self portrait. So I understand. She wants a freeholder who owns a house and land. I cannot maintain her with silver and gold. And all of the fine things that a big That record has a huge cast of players on it. Like, was that something that was done? Were you just involved in sessions? Like, did you do it in Nashville or New York, or where? Where was your part of that record? We were in New York. Okay. Uh, the Nashville stuff, I think, was stuff he'd done when he was doing Nashville Skyline. That uh, right. you know, he had some great stuff that hadn't made it on. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's only room. For, you can only have twenty-two minutes on a side of okay. an LP 
a vinyl. Yeah. Uh, more than that, and you don't get any uh, fidelity at all. Right. So he had more tunes than he could put on. At that point, like, was Dylan somebody that you were a fan of and aware of, or was it just like a, another session for you? Oh, I was a huge fan. You were okay. And how? Oh, yeah. How did that, that record is really interesting? I think because. Like at the time, it kind of got panned, right? Like it came out after Nashville yeah. Skyline, and everyone said, "Oh, this is lame," and it's sort of a throwaway record. And he got a lot of flack for it. But, but in retrospect, people feel very differently about that record, and it's come to be known as like a real classic, a real gem in his catalog. Kind of. Did you have any feelings about where where it fit for you, like as a as a fan and as a player, while it was going down? Did Did you have thoughts about that? Well. No, I don't think so. I mean, the reason that it got panned so much was there were none of Bob's own tunes on there. Yeah. Uh, um, and so people want, you know, after you do a couple of things that people like, then they want you always to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so they panned it. He did something different. Having been involved in it, I, I never listen to things after I've done them. And, right. there, you know, I knew all the tunes. It wasn't, you, you know, so... I don't listen to myself, so I I, I didn't uh, I, I, so I didn't have much judgment about it. And so, tell me a bit about like like in sessions with, with him in particular. Um, I've heard from a number of people that have played with him, like back in especially back in those days in the in the Nashville session era um, and right after, where you know basically they don't get any feedback from him at all, aside from getting the call in the first place means that he must be approving in some way. But did you, how was your experience actually like interacting with him during those sessions? Where did you feel like part of the proceedings or was it a bit of a mystery? Well, most of the uh, self-portrait sessions were just me and him. Okay. So yeah, I was part of the proceedings. Was he generally supportive of things you were doing or was it, was it not really... Um, I assumed spoken. he liked it, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, which may or may not have been true. But part of the, the issue with that was that um, uh, I had a terrible cold. I mean, a really nasty virus-like or flu-like thing. Um, so I would go to the studio and uh, come home and fall asleep in my clothes and wake up in time to shower and go, uh, go in again. That's so it was all pretty much of a blur to me. It's a bit of a blur, yeah. And then New Morning, like obviously things went well enough that you got a call to do the next record. And the next mm-hmm. record's a bit more concise. There's less players. And I, was that back in New York? The self-portrait sessions I did were mostly just me and Bob, right. period. Okay, yeah. Al Cooper says that he was on some of them. Right. Uh, and I don't remember him being in the studio. I remember Al very well. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't remember him being in the studio. But if he says so, it, it must be true. But as I say, I was kind of, you know, playing through a fog of disease. Right. Um, <laughs> and Al did a bunch of overdubs, so it sounded like there were more people. Right. Okay. Uh, um, but uh, the, the next album, uh, uh, New Morning, uh, Ron Cornelius was there on guitar and uh, Charlie Daniels on bass. 
Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, and Russ Conkle on drums. Yeah, and Bob Johnston was producing that record as well. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and do you remember much about working with him? Like, I've, he's such a character, that guy, and and I, I love hearing things about him. Do, do, do you remember his kind of direction and input as a producer, or was he kind of hands off, or what was his deal? I I don't. My memory, which could be flawed, is that he he seemed to be pretty hands off. But maybe you know he may have gone through things with Bob, uh-huh. but uh, I don't remember him getting on the talk back and and directing us a different way. So you were just kind of playing guitar and doing your thing and it seemed to just go smoothly and and that's what they used. Yep. That's awesome. Well, that's a huge stamp of approval probably, right? I hope so. And then, (laughs) you know, some of, some of that session was on the, uh, some of those sessions was also on the following album. Yeah. And then years and years later, I produced a bunch of tunes. Yeah. Um, And did you play live with him as well or was it just a studio thing? It was mostly a studio thing, although when he, uh, in later years when I had stopped touring and was living in Chicago, uh, Bob might call me up when he was coming to town and uh, uh, invite me to uh, uh, sit in, uh, do some tunes by myself, and then sit in. Nice. And that was, yeah, it was yeah. very nice. Another session, and, and this is something that I, I, I brought up originally when I wanted to talk to you, was... Um, the record that you produced for John Hartford, who I, I have a bit of a fixation with. And one of the great records that he ever made was, was the Aeroplane record that you produced. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because uh, partly just I'm really fascinated with him. And I talked to a lot of people in Nashville and he always tends to come up. He's just such a character. Um, I was yeah. just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how that record came to be and how you ended up producing it because producing isn't something you've done a ton of really no no at that point I hadn't um, the, the way that my participation happened was that John was uh, appearing on the Philadelphia Folk Festival uh, and I was on it and the two of us kind of just really hit it off okay and uh, the woman who uh, was responsible for who performed when and where said if she wanted to find one of us, she'd find both of us. Okay. Now, if one was there, then the other was there. And we just played nonstop. Yeah. And then he asked me to produce. And um, he asked me to produce it in a way I've never heard of another album being produced. He insisted that neither he nor any of the musicians were to hear note one until it was mixed and sequenced. Figure out, and I guess it must have seemed a lot more like that back in the good old days. But when you gotta go, you gotta go. There's always somebody, don't you know? I hang around to saying, Well, I told you so back in the good old days. Yeah, the good old days are past and gone. A lot of good people are done gone. gone. Oh, that's my life. 
no listening back no no listening back so when i say i produced it i did you know almost in a vacuum yeah claude hill was the engineer where Um, where did you record it nashville Uh um i stayed with norman blake at the time oh okay through through all the recording and and uh we, uh, John and I had almost a falling out when after the first bunch of sessions, he called me up and said, I can't wait to hear it. And I said, well, I don't think we're done. And he said, what do you mean? We got pr- plenty of tunes. I said, yeah, but I think half of them are great and half of them are like filler. Really? And he got so pissed off, he hung up on me. Oh, no. And about 45 minutes later, he called back and he said, look, I said you could produce it. So, all right, we'll go back in. Of course, what I ha- what hadn't occurred to me is that I was spending his money. Yes, so it he might felt... be better that it hadn't occurred to me, um, right. because they they actually um, released all the outtakes, and yeah. and they are good, but I don't think they're as good as what was on the album. I don't know. Yeah, so you'd yeah. have to ask somebody else. So, what was his what was, like? What was his philosophy behind not having anyone listen back? I think a he didn't want to interrupt the flow, okay. And um, b he didn't want everybody looking at you know inspecting their navel. Right. Just play the yeah. damn music. Play the damn thing. So was it kind of like one or two takes and then it was done? Move on. No, it might be more than that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know some of the things were my idea: turn your radio on, starting and ending the album with turn your radio on. Yeah, uh, that's a good idea. Turn your radio. Turn your radio. Come and listen in to the Gloryland Chorus. Listen to the glad hosannas roll. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on. One tune that was just, uh, it was Leather Bridges, just John and uh, Vassar, just banjo and yep. fiddle. And um, also, uh, John didn't want to include Hey Baby, Want a Boogie. He didn't? Uh, no, he, he really didn't. <laughs> and um, I put it on, and it was the most played track. <laughs> <laughs> that is a wacky tune. It, oh, yeah, it uh, is, which is why it was the most played track. So how did you even get him to record it if he didn't want to do it? Oh, he didn't mind recording it. He just didn't want it on the record. Here we can boogie over there. Come on, babe, we can boogie everywhere. Hey, babe, I want to boogie. Boogie, woogie, woogie with me. Hey, babe, you want to boogie. Boogie, woogie, woogie with me. Hey, baby, I want to boogie. Boogie, woogie, woogie with me. Oh, we can boogie in the house. We can boogie in the yard. Come on, baby, it ain't very hard. And did the band exist as a band at that point? Or did you get all those guys, like Norman Blake and, and Randy Scruggs and all those guys, did you get them together? Or was that a band that already He existed? chose the musicians, which was uh, uh, responsible, uh, which was chiefly responsible for the quality of the record, in my opinion. And all done live, I assume. Like, was it all just done in 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 a room with everybody close together and yep. all that, or was it? Yep. There there wasn't there wasn't overdubs done on it. No, I don't recall any overdubs. What was your role like as 
as a producer and somebody not allowed to listen back to any takes, like how did you dig in and like contribute? I, well, I, I'd tell them when they needed to do it again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I might uh, tinker with the form a little bit. Well, not much. Um, okay. And uh, um, I, as I did said, see- I, I, it was my idea to do some of the things that are on there. But uh, also uh, the mix was fairly significant. I mean, there's there's yeah. there's one track, for example, uh, "Steam Powered Aeroplane." That track, yeah, uh, I mixed in a way that uh, I I have never mixed anything else, and always hated people who mix things that way. That is a um, democratic mix. Nobody is louder than anybody else, and the okay. the the, yeah. the instrumental sections are ensemble. The way right. I mixed it, it's it's everybody playing at once. So the idea really was just having this this sound as a, a, a of a band playing the leads rather than one particular instrument on on that track and that track alone. on that track and and so that that's another funny record because like it kind of bombed right like when it came out um, but I have again, to tell you that I I went to uh, Los Angeles and played it for the head of the record company it was Warner Brothers yeah. and uh, I felt that there was a single on there but a country single. Uh, that it was a tune they're going to tear down the Grand Old Opry. Yeah. That would have been, that would have gotten a lot of airplay. Uh, 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 but at that point, Warner Brothers had never had a country uh, hit, and they had no idea oh. how to do it. Plus, when I, when I played it for the president, evidently he hated it, and they never put a nickel <laughs> in. What they had thought they were going to get was uh, uh, ten gentle on my minds. Ten gentle on my minds. Yeah, right. and, and they got, and, "Hey, babe, you want a boogie?" Yeah, <laughs> and and stuff with a banjo, and they put not one penny into promoting it. Ah, oh, that sucks. I mean, that must. So, feel I like... mean, how could it do anything but bomb? And they obviously just didn't have the foresight to realize that what they had was was significant and cool. Well, it was the beginning of a genre. I'm told. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's basically, you know, that's that's kind of the the album that kicked off that whole thing with, like, bluegrass instrumentation sort of getting outside of blue, of the traditional form and, and playing, like, interesting new songs that that don't follow the same format. So, yeah, I, I, I would say that for sure. Bob Carlin, who uh, had talked a lot with uh, John, told me that John asked me to produce it because he wanted a New York sensibility, the New York sensibility, not necessarily having to do with how people usually think of New York, but uh, he knew that in New York, we'd sit down and play, uh, smoke a bunch of dope and, and play a fiddle tune for hours Uh improvising and taking it all kinds of different ways. And that's what he liked. And that may be true. I don't, you know, uh, John never told me that, but uh, Uh you know, that, I, I can see that. Was that something that you had to like work on with the guys who were all Nashville musicians? Like, were they just wanting to get in and play the song and get out of there? Or was it something that they were all on board with anyway? I think, well, 
you have to remember that uh, one of the more important musicians on it was Vassar Clements. Yep. And you can't tie him down. No. He, that, yeah. And so, and everybody loved Vassar and his playing. So mm -hmm. everybody flew with it. Right. I didn't have to encourage him or anything. They were there. Was it done like over three, four days kind of thing? Or how, like, do you remember it taking any longer than that? It took a few weeks because we had two sets of sessions. Oh, okay. And, like and two studios. albums came out of it. Aerial Plane and the outtakes of Aerial Plane. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there was a t just like a ton of stuff. There was a ton basically. of stuff. Going from, from that into your own recordings is something that seemed to come like after you'd been a, a bit of a seasoned vet, like you'd been playing for on sessions, on big sessions for six or seven years or something, and then suddenly you put your own record out. What made you want to do that? I was writing songs. Uh -huh. Seemed like that was what came next. Were you pursuing a record deal as a solo artist or anything, or how did it come about? Oh, well, that's, back in that's those the days, story. I was uh, uh, at the Isle of Wight, and I was there to accompany a, a singer named Rosalie Sorrells. Her thing is a very intimate thing. That's where she always shined. We were there on a Wednesday afternoon, so there was no press there. Right. Uh, the, however, there were mm, three to six thousand no uh three to six hundred thousand people there that's and significant the reason it was the last one was that early on on that wednesday morning people broke down the fences and came in free so the promoters weren't going to make a nickel and they they were going to go into debt and they knew it but they had to put on the show or they would have a riot right. and um Although it's counterintuitive, it's also true that an audience that has not paid is the hardest audience to please. And these guys were booing people off the stage. Some pretty really? good acts. Why? Because they weren't pleased. They, <laughs> they, they wanted something different than, you know, for instance, we followed Chris Christopherson. And I, I think that, uh, you know, the people there from Italy and Germany and England yeah. were not that familiar with Chris okay. and uh, they gave him a real hard time. Um, <laughs> and then, and then Rosalie and I went on and they started giving her a hard time. Cause they didn't know her. Yeah. Uh, and also she was best in an intimate situation. It wasn't the best place for her to perform. Right. 500,000 people. Yeah. And yeah. so in the middle of her set, she did something she'd never done before and never did later either. She asked me to do a tune of mine that was a long, funny tune. Okay. So I did it. And the crowd liked it and permitted her to finish her set. Wow. And when we got off stage, the promoters asked me if I would come back at uh, six, just at dusk. So I said, Sure. So I, I, I didn't realize it, but dusk is the best time to perform at an outdoor festival. I mean, I was so totally. green. I, I didn't know any of this stuff. And so I, I showed up and I asked them, I said, how many tunes do you want me to do? And they said, do an hour. <laughs> I had never really? done an hour in my life. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. And uh, I, got, I got three encores. No way. And uh, uh, yeah, we'd, I'd, I'd come off the stage. I was all by myself. And, and there'd be these guys with uh, um, film cameras and, 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 and lights, you know. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty funny. And I, I've, I've heard there's a guy who has all that film, but I haven't seen it yet. So were you doing stuff that you kind of had up your sleeve mm -hmm. or were you kind of winging it because you had to fill in so much time? 
Yeah, I don't know how I did it. Okay. I just did it. So you did that and felt pretty great, obviously. And then that led to signing some sort of solo deal where you started making your own record? Well, Tio Macero, who I never met face-to-face, was there recording it. Uh And I wish I had met him because I I should thank him. You know, I would have loved to have thanked him. Um, He was recording it. But one of the more peculiar things about the recording, uh, it, there, there was an album about, uh, of the Atlanta Festival and the Isle of Wight Festival. It was a triple album. I have it. Oh, okay. Well, if you listen to me, I sound like one of the chipmunks. Um, <laughs> and I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe it has to do with the uh, electrical current. Uh, uh-huh. I, I heard that although the uh, contract, Columbia's contract stipulated that they would have the current regulated, it wasn't. And so the recording was slow. The machines were running slow, but the mastering was done in the States and that was done at speed. So that may be, or it may be just that I sounded like a chipmunk back then. I really don't know. I was down and out, you know. He looked to me to be the eyes of age. As I spoke right out He talked of life Or people he talked of life He laughed and slapped his leg a step That first solo record That's a really cool record Um, Was like Was there a lot of thought put into the material and all that, or was it just stuff, something that you were totally ready to do? It was stuff I was ready to do. And, uh, you know, I, I mostly produced it myself. Uh, I had a couple of, uh, uncredited, uh, performers on it. Uh, one of the tunes was the holdup, which I had written with George Harrison and he played, yeah. he played slide on it, but I, I wanted his, his playing. I, I, I didn't want to stand on his shoulders. So, so he's not credited. And, Bob played harmonica on uh, one track. Really? Yeah. He had a song called Sammy's Song. I'm, I'm told that that was one that John Lennon liked a lot. Wow. I'm pretty proud of that tune because I've never heard another one anything like it. Having brought him to the brink, his uncle leaves him with his drink. Rum and Coke. Don't taste too bad. The girls all gather in a group and give Sammy Boy the eye. And stare at him seductively and try to make him buy. So choosing one that's younger, better looking than the rest. Sammy speaks no Spanish, but she understands. They go upstairs to buy the room she wants. And that hold up song is also very cool. I heard that George Harrison co-wrote that song with you. Yeah, so did you guys... we wrote it together okay. in about uh, in about a half an hour. Nice. Without trying. Um, <laughs> where where did where did you meet him? Like, how did that come about? Because you've got a bit of a relationship with some Beatles. I met him. 
I remember meeting him at the Columbia Studios. I remember he came to a show that I did at Gertie's Folk City. But that mm-hmm. particular night was a Thanksgiving dinner at the home of Al Aronowitz, who was a writer for the New York Post and at the time my manager. And uh, it was just Al's family and me and George. And, yeah. and um, you know, we're guitar junkies, George and I. And there, sure. there was a guitar there. It was uh, Al's daughter, uh, Brett's gut string guitar. George and I would pass it back and forth. And before we knew it, we'd written a song. Awesome. And then was he easy, was it easy to to wrangle uh, somebody like George Harrison to be on the record, or did you have to like go through a whole bunch of nonsense to get him? You no. Know, in, in those days, things were very easy for me, and uh, yeah, I, I was so lucky. And I I don't know how much I I recognized how privileged I was, but I sure was. Well, it was a different time then too. Like people weren't probably surrounded by three layers of lawyers like they are now and things like that. And, you know, I guess if you had a friendly relationship with somebody at some point, you could just get them on your record without too much hassle. It seems like way more of an ordeal these well, days. Well, I, I related to people um, without treating them like their name was in lights all the time. Right. Uh, I didn't know any better, maybe. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> Well, that's how people like to be treated, I think. I think you know, so. I be, think so. Yeah. yeah. With your solo records, like another one that I really like is Midnight on the Water, which I don't know, that was probably your th- third or fourth. fourth. And that one, like, it's really interesting to me because it really successfully, I think, dips into like bluegrass and blues and ragtime and some pretty straight ahead kind of country stuff. Um, as an artist at that time where labels were kind of everything, you, you, you weren't really be able to function as an independent artist like you are now. Um, was there pressure on you to like focus on one genre so they could pigeonhole you and sell you as something or how did that all No, although it was pretty clear that um, marketing me was difficult because um, the uh, record stores didn't know what bin to put me in and uh, uh, the record company didn't know what um, uh, what radio stations to try and get to play me and, and, and what magazines to advertise me in. They had no idea. Where, where the hell, what do you do with this guy? So I was uh-huh. Mr. Miscellaneous for quite a while. Mr. Miscellaneous. But you know, now, album today, people do what I did. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's it doesn't seem that far fetched of an idea at all to me. When I listen to that record, it just sounds like a great record with lots of different influences. But I can see how back in the day people would find that hard to market or whatever because they had to really market records in a different way. And there was a single on there, but they wouldn't put out a, uh, put it out as a single. And the reason was that they were getting ready to put the same song out by uh, Johnny Nash who had a, a, a minor hit with it. It was A Wonderful World, you know, oh, okay. the Sam Cooke tune. Somebody come here and tell me what a slide rule is from. But I do know one, one is two. Uh, and if this one could only be with you, then what a wonderful And so was that record kind of 
left out in the cold, like so many great records are as far as promotion and things like that? Yes, uh, uh, and there's a specific reason. Um, I had on my contract that if uh, if I produced an album that sold 100,000 copies, I would get a, a handsome bonus. Um, and shortly after that uh, album was released, my second album hit the hit 100,000. And in another couple of weeks, my first was going to do that. And in, okay. in a few months, the third would. Um, so they dropped me. Oh my God! Well, so you see, sitting- by dropping me, they saved seventy-five thousand dollars because they, oh they then they God. didn't have to give me the bonuses. Oh, that's so um, ethical of them. Well, you know, it's it's business. Um, yeah. One thing which I suppose is fairly obvious, but it took me a long time to realize it. If uh, if a club books you or a, a, a record company signs you and does a record. In neither case are they doing it to help you. They're doing it to help right. them. And yeah, they want to make money. They, well, like they're that. entitled to, but yeah. it's important to keep that in mind when things like this happen to you. But selling 100,000 copies is like, that's good and that's substantial. You'd think that they would be willing to throw a bit of dough your way and keep that ball rolling. Yeah, but they didn't know what the hell I was. I wasn't anything. <laughs> I wasn't like anything they had. And, um, you know, they they yeah, yeah they just didn't know what to do with me. Okay, so they dropped you. Yep. When you basically dropped out of playing and performing and recording, you were pursuing what you also still do now, which is violin repair, right? Well, no, I'm not a a repair person. Actually, I haven't touched edge tools since I graduated from school. Oh, okay. uh, what I was always interested in was violin identification, which is not necessary oh. with guitars. If a guitar says it's Martin or Fender or Gibson, chances are it was made in, in the factory of Martin, Fender, or Gibson. But um, if a violin says Stradivarius, it, it's rather unlikely that Stradivarius uh, ever saw it. And so the, the question is, uh, how do you tell? And even though it might not be by Stradivarius, that doesn't mean it's bad. Could be something really good right. worth thousands or tens of thousands. So, so you have to be able to recognize the work. It's like nothing so much as fine art appraisal. And um, the similarity to music is that there's no end to it. There's no bottom to it. No one will ever live to know it all. So how did you get into that? Um, I went to violin making school. And uh-huh. uh, not that I wanted to make violins, but in making them, I learned how to look at them. Yeah. And then when I graduated, the, the thing is you cannot identify something as being the work of a maker whose work you've never seen before. You have to steal yeah, so you- a lot of violins. So, yeah. uh, um, so I became a, a wholesaler in Chicago that, okay. that I didn't sell you know, a, a gross of violins. I sold one at, at a time. Uh, um, I, I didn't keep them for long. I made a very small margin, uh, yeah. but I handled thousands of violins. Okay. And if I'd handled it, I remembered it. Right. So that's uh, that's how all that started. 
spent and, 22 and, years doing that. Yeah. So like what, what drew you, were you just in the end, like more fascinated with that than you were with playing music anymore? Or was the music thing just getting to be a grind or what, what happened exactly? What happened was I got burnt out and uh, okay. I, I realized at one point that I was off the road and I wasn't practicing. I wasn't jamming. Yeah. I wasn't writing. There's nothing of a musician there. So I concluded I was not a musician. And I didn't want to be one of these guys who drags his butt on the stage and does a bitter imitation of something he loved. Um, I, I, I decided I had to find something else to do that I would enjoy. And uh, I had become fascinated with violins. And so I went to violin making school and stopped performing and stopped playing wow. pretty much. Um, and and all through that time, like you you had no interest in getting back into it, and and it, it was just something that you took a drastic left turn with. Yeah, uh, I would do a, wow. a show every now and then, but it was kind of yeah. like if you've ever been at a picnic and somebody has a softball and a bat and a couple of gloves, you play softball, and then you don't think yeah. about it until you're at another picnic with a bat and ball and gloves. Right. Yeah. So it was like that. Same kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. And so it's still an active business that you're still a big part of. Yep. Wow. Fantastic. Um, how do you fit it in with, cause you seem to have rekindled your whole love of performing and recording. So that's sort of taking off. What's, um, what's the secret to balancing all that? I don't know, but, but if I find it, I'll <laughs> let you know. That's so cool, man. I, I really dig that, that that's happened for you and that it's something that's really fulfilling outside of your other career. Um, and, and so just to give me an idea of where things are going for you, are, are you planning to make another record or like what's, what's in the near future for you and your band? I'm so privileged to play with the guys I play with. It's such a, it's such a great feeling. Yeah, I, I recently made a list of tunes uh, for when the time comes to make the next uh, uh, recording. I, I have a, I have a little, I have about thirty-five tunes I'm ready to do. Yeah, I hope we hear some more, some more soon from from you and that crew. So looking forward to that. Thanks. Hey, I got a funny story yeah. to tell you. All right. When I was on Columbia, I had a single out of a tune I wrote called Sharon. Yeah, that's right. I know. I know. And um, uh, I was flying into Minneapolis, and I don't know if you know the way that the record uh, business used to work. I don't know if it still does, <laughs> but um, they they would uh, Columbia would uh, release a whole group of records every week, and they would send their promotion people a list, uh, a numbered list of of what they should be promoting, and they yeah. should promote whatever was number one. And then uh, theoretically next week, what was number two, then would they'd, they'd start to work on that. Yeah. Um, but uh, number two never became number one. It was only the number ones really that got the promotion. When Sharon came out, it was number two. Uh, and there was also three, four, five, six, and 10, but it was number two. And uh, these things always start in the smaller markets. And then if you have success on in a number of smaller markets, then they promote it in, a, in one of the large markets. So there was one guy who was responsible uh, for promoting Columbia Records in uh, Fargo and Kansas City and Minneapolis and I forget where else, maybe St. Yeah. Louis. He liked Sharon better than the number one. 
He wanted that to be his number one. He made it number one on the charts and was fired for that. Because, <laughs> Charming. Well, it, it interrupted their their momentum for the for the yeah. one that they were doing. So yeah. so anyhow, I'm flying into Minneapolis not knowing any of this. Um, <laughs> and Sharon is number one on the radio, and I don't know this. So like on rock radio, yeah, like like FM radio, yeah, yeah. AM radio. Oh, AM, AM okay, radio. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm renting a car, and all of a sudden I hear my tune on the AM radio behind the counter, and and I say to the young lady who is uh, signing me in, I say, "Do they play this a lot?" And she, <laughs> and she says, "All the time. I'm sick of it." <laughs> so somehow I think that's emblematic of my career. <laughs> I went inside and I looked around for a seat. The lights went low and the drums played a beat. Then this girl come out dressed in a scarf and a sneeze. And she did a little dance that made me weak. Well, thanks for um, sharing your stories with me today, man. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, telling me all this stuff. Oh, it's, it's fun, huh? Uh, thank you for your interest. That's a good thing. So why should I be scared of you? I could feel your All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening. That was my conversation with David Bromberg. I hope you enjoyed it. Head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you don't mind. A great review if you don't mind. And we'll see you next week for another fascinating episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. 